new program about cutting-edge science responding to the big challenges of our day. Coming up this hour, an interview with oceanographer and renowned researcher Gary Griggs. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman, and I'm sitting here with Joe Jordan. Hi, Joe. Hi, everybody. Great to have you. And this is the maiden voyage of Planet Watch, a program we hope will be entertaining, enlightening, and informing, and very important to your survival. So put it on a note on your calendar to tune in every Sunday at 2 p.m. for Planet Watch. And we're very excited to have Tommy Martin as well, our intern here in the studio. Hi, Tommy. <laughs> Hi, Rachel. Great to have you. Okay. Great to and, be here. And we will be taking questions as we go along, as well as comments through email. So write down this email address, planetwatchksco at gmail.com. That's the way to get in touch with us for now. We also have a Facebook page, Planet Watch Radio. Go check us out there. And uh, let's just quickly introduce ourselves and tell why we're doing this. And then we're going to jump right into some news roundups about the science of the day. So, Joe, you want to start? Well, okay, yeah. We kind of want to initiate or at least contribute to uh, what I'm calling a micro-enterprise of media revolution to, uh, you know, the corporate mass media are just not doing the job of getting the truth out there on things about the world, uh, and including the physical world, the earth and, you know, the universe even. And so we want to uh, get folks jazzed and educated and, you know, activated about doing things about these huge problems that are staring us in the face, such as what I'm calling climate chaos. I don't particularly like the term global warming. It sounds really fuzzy and nice. <laughs> I mean, but climate chaos, okay. And, you know, there's disagreement here and there about various things about the climate but hey uh, it's it's a big problem and we and there are people just screaming for solutions you know for ideas of what are we going to do what do we do now <laughs> so that's uh, pathways to possible solutions is what a big focus of this show is about and um, I come to this from a radio background. I also was part of a show called The DNA Files, which talked about genetics. It was a five-part documentary series that was on NPR a while back. And when I was a managing editor of that series, I got to talk to scientists all over the world and find out what cutting-edge things they were doing. And that was a little while ago now, and everything's changed, you know. So... It's our job in a way, I think, to keep people up on the latest science because it is moving, especially in the field of climate science and oceanography. These things are going to affect our lives in our lifetimes. And so keeping up on not only what the cutting edge science is, what we're learning, but what we might do and what, what solutions are being discovered uh, is a great service, I think, to the listeners. So that's, that's why I'm doing this. I also teach journalism at Cabrillo, so that's why Tommy's here. Besides the fact that he's our intern, I think he's interested in this topic, right? Yeah, I'm really excited to be a part of the solutions that Joe is talking about and being a part of the show that's discussing them. <laughs> and I'll just add that in order to get at solutions, you have to know what you're up against. We, we really have to come to grips with what's going on and and you know the science and nature and the cool fun interesting stuff behind you know problems <laughs> so uh, as rachel writes here let's start by saying unequivocally that the earth is round <laughs> and sorry so you flat earthers we're going to be shocking you with some facts during this program and, and, and some and that's cosmic one of them. <laughs> and some cosmic relief we're going to bring in cosmic relief here 
Yes, and, and let's start out by giving people a few uh, news roundups of the week in science. Um, you know, a lot of women lie about their age, or they used to. Maybe that's not fashionable anymore. But <laughs> did you know that maybe the moon has been lying about its age all these years? <laughs> and it turns out it's actually between 40 million and 140 million years older than previously thought. So I'm not exactly sure whether that shakes our world too much here on earth but um we are close to each other and we are governed in a way by what happens there so knowing the history of our two earthly bodies <laughs> the moon and us uh, is probably incredibly important to us so <laughs> melanie barboni a research geochemist at ucla's department of earth planetary and space scientists was the lead author of this study and it turns out that um Whatever there was before the giant impact has been erased. So she looked at eight zircons in a lab in Princeton using a mass spectrometer and their, uh, their clocks, in a way, to look how old things are. And she found out this, this revelation that, indeed, the clock says, no, <laughs> they were all wrong. So that's what I love about science is everything you know can be made wrong pretty quickly. And just to fill in a little background on that, the moon-forming event, as they call it, was probably the most violent event in the history of the solar system and uh, you know like a Mars sized object Mars is actually quite a bit smaller than the earth came zooming by at kind of a glancing angle to the earth some long time ago maybe not quite as long ago as we had thought and you know splattered into the earth and a whole bunch of it actually temporarily flew out into orbit and, and formed a lava ring around the earth for a while a bunch of it plopped back into the earth due to the earth's gravity and then a bunch of it escaped never to return but a whole bunch of it most of it formed the moon which used to be a lot closer to the earth and used to have a much shorter orbital period than it does now and now it now it takes a month for the moon to go around the world so would you like to guess how old it is now <laughs> now that we know how old it is it, it's 4.51 billion years old now it's that's, got a new age that's down in the noise <laughs> we'd like waking up one day and finding your birthday was actually a lot different than you mm -hmm. thought. Darn, I'm 40 million years older than I thought I was. You ever wake up feeling like that? You probably do. And if you're listening, maybe you already do today. So <laughs> what's the next news item on our list? And what do you have there? Oh, yeah. The, well, hey, uh, I just want to mention something about solar energy, which is certainly going to be a big part of solving our problem of, you know, the human race has gas. <laughs> we emit way too much carbon into the atmosphere. And with solar energy, uh, you, uh, you know, you emit carbon in the manufacture, say, of photovoltaics, you know, light to electricity panels. But that's a one-shot deal. And then for the 40 or 50 or 60 years that those things last, producing electricity, there's no carbon emissions. Well, anyway, you know, the, the thing that's been blocking us, besides politics, which has been substantial, <laughs> but heretofore, it's the cost. You know, the stuff costs too much. Well, there's been a recent breakthrough in the cost of solar electricity, thanks largely, actually, to China's development efforts. We invented the stuff way back in the 50s at Bell Labs on the East Coast. But uh, we've sort of almost, relatively speaking, abandoned it to the Japanese and the Germans and now the Chinese. And, you know, they're going to get with it. And, and the fact I'm, I'm in despair, partly that the U.S. hasn't... Uh, you know, led the way, but I'm encouraged that these other countries are going to drag us kicking and screaming into the green revolution with solar. And what's going to really help is that the cost has come way down. It's now cheaper than new fossil fuel energy. That's a major, you know, 
development and as of just a few couple weeks ago this was announced certainly good news one more little item along those same lines um, crystallization method offers new option for carbon capture from ambient air so they're going to suck carbon right out of the air scientists at oak ridge national laboratory have found a simple and reliable process to capture carbon dioxide directly from ambient air offering a new option for carbon capture and storage strategies to combat global warming Mr. Charles Seep, forgive me if I mispronounce your name, synthesized a simple compound known as guanidine that was found to bind strongly with carbon dioxide directly from the air and form insoluble carbonate crystals that are easily separated from water. So this could be revolutionary. You wouldn't want to actually have it suck too much. You know, you never know where these things are going to go, but it's in the lab. And it's promising technology, which we could explore further. Perhaps we'll get Mr. Seip on the line and find out more yeah. what he has to say at another program. But um, we want to move along to our yeah, guest. Well, just who- 10 seconds more. We do, <laughs> you know, in addition to stopping, not just lowering, but stopping our emissions of carbon, we need to actually do negative emissions big time. We need to start doing what you just said, getting carbon out of the atmosphere. Nobody really knows how to do that economically yet, but it's going to be a huge frontier, folks, and <laughs> we just got to get with it. So, yeah, thanks for that one, Rachel. So, and, you know, that's the Department of Energy, interestingly enough. So Mm -hmm. good things can come out of those departments, and we hope they will continue to get to do their work as time goes by. Well, we're very fortunate today uh, to have in our studios Gary Griggs, who um, not only is the author of Our Ocean Backyard in our local newspaper, he is also an oceanographer, and he is with uh, Long Marine Lab Seymour Center at UC Santa Cruz. He's been doing ocean science and geology for most of his life, and he um, has a talk coming up in Santa Cruz, California, at the Rio Theater to talk about how all of what he's learning may affect us personally, and I'd like to give a big, great big thank you and a welcome to Gary Griggs. Thank you for being here. <laughs> I'm honored to be on your first program. Thank we're, you very we're much. We're so honored to have you. So what, what, is the talk of your, uh, what is the topic of your talk coming up? You want to talk about that briefly, and then we're going to dive into some sure. heady questions about the ocean. <laughs> so it's, it's a short history of the geology and natural disasters in Santa Cruz County. And when we first set this up last spring, we were still in the middle of a drought. But over the last several weeks or so, all of a sudden, floods and mudslides and landslides are becoming a little more... F- moving into the forefront of people's minds. So talking about sort of the origin of Santa Cruz over the long term and then what kinds of things we can expect in the future that we've seen in the past in disaster realm. So you have an interesting book out which shows, you know, the coast then and now. And it's just so graphic because the pictures are, well, here's where the road used to be and then 30 feet in is where it is now. That's just a microcosm of what's happening all over the globe, right, because of sea level rise. So I thought we'd start there because you had a very interesting article about our rising ocean. Um, first kind of general question is, how fast is the ocean rising now as compared to what it was doing 100 years ago, if you could answer <laughs> that question? That's a really good starting point. And these are things we can measure so we know pretty well. And the short answer is that it's probably rising about twice as fast as it did in the last century. And and I could start with saying um, the shoreline is one of the most important lines on the planet, in large part because most of the world's people live close to it. But it's moving. It's moving towards us, and it's moving towards us because sea level is rising, and it's rising because the planet's getting warmer and ice is melting, 
And all ice melts at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. It doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or Republican. The ice is nonpartisan, is what you're saying? Very nonpartisan. It's only response to one pressure, and that's not the voters. <laughs> Just 32 degrees, that's it. That's physics. So physics doesn't lie. Um, of those contributors, um, is the ice melting the fastest um, contributor to sea level rise? Historically... Over much of the last century, it was believed to be what we call thermal expansion, or as the water heats up, it expands, and that happens in your water heater. But now, more recent measurements suggest uh, that perhaps two-thirds of that increase is due to ice melt. So we've got some several really large reservoirs of ice that are melting at rates that are sort of unprecedented in recent times. Let's talk feet or inches or where are we are. Millimeters. Millimeters. <laughs> so. I know that, you know, on some level, um, the average person will say, oh, the ocean's rising two millimeters. What should that concern me? Right. So where does it start to concern us? There's a natural, <laughs> you know, ups and downs of the right. long view cycle that has happened without our help. Then there's this. So how, how different are th is this to that? Right. So there's two pieces that one is the long term you mentioned. There's both long term natural increases that have gone on for since we've had an earth and a sun. And those vary up to 225 or so feet of rise and fall, rise and fall that's gone on actually more than that, probably 400 feet. Today, the rate is about we can think about it in millimeters per year. So 3.3 millimeters per year, which is about two quarters <laughs> or 13 inches per century. But all of the projections are that that's going to increase in the decades ahead. So it's a ramp, and we're on this ramp with an increasing slope. The other piece of it is the short-term event. So this last week we had so-called king tides or these extreme tides, and we have El Nino events, and we have coincidence of storms and high tides, and we have tsunamis. So over the short term... I'll say the next 50 years, those are probably going to be more important than a few millimeters per year. But the big uncertainties now are really what's happening in Greenland and Antarctica. And Greenland has about 22 feet of sea level rise equivalent. So we go underwater here at KSCO. <laughs> So much for being the main emergency service radio <laughs> glug, station. Glug, glug. And yeah. a Antarctica has about 200 feet of sea level rise equivalent. And then if we add in all the continental glaciers in Patagonia, the Alps, the Andes, and the Himalayas, maybe two feet. So about 225 feet of total sea level rise equivalent. Nobody, no reasonable scientist think that's going to occur this century or the next or the next. It has happened in geologic time. Uh, when we think all the ice melted and things were much, much warmer. But that's at least proportionally sort of where we stand. So um, I, I want Joe to get in a couple questions here because I know he has them, but I have one <laughs> more on this subject. So tell us how it works where these you have these sheets of ice, right, on, up on the shelf there, um, and then you have these blocks of ice outside on the continental shelf in the ocean, kind of keeping them from sliding off. Can you describe that more and how you learned about that? Because it's really interesting, a little bit scary that if you uncork the corker, the stopper, then these things come out into the ocean and make it go much quicker than what you just said. Right. You've been doing your homework, Rachel. I'm, I am impressed. Because <laughs> well, we these, these, these are, I mean, they're relatively complicated 
topics, but they have huge consequences. So um, most of Greenland is melting as glaciers are calving off and melting both into the subsurface and, and flowing off the edge. And um, that's a little easy to understand. Antarctica does have these huge ice sheets that are grounded on the seafloor, but they're being held back by these ice shelves. So since an ice shelf, like the ice in the Arctic, is already floating, its melting is like an ice cube in a glass. It's not going to add any more level, but they're holding back these massive ice sheets. And what's been done recently is actually looking at it more carefully and trying to understand the physics that a couple things are happening. Both it's melting from the surface, these ice sheets and these sort of corks, as it gets warmer. And as the water gets warmer, it's melting it from underneath. So we think the underneath is starting to float these corks up and melting from the top is starting to get into these cracks and fissures and starting to split pieces off. And once you start to do that, things can start to come undone pretty quickly. And so the question now is, in fact, the governor of California has just set up a new task force to look at what that means for California. And two of the people on this committee are actually the people that have done this most recent work in Antarctica. And, and then what are the probabilities or how do you project? And it's not, we know what's happening, but but it's challenging to get down to the very precise dates and times of when this is going to happen. That's what I've always found fascinating about all of this work. And maybe Joe and Tommy can chime in here too, that, that there is an expectation that you can run these complicated computer models and say exactly what will happen in the future. And <laughs> humans have never been that great at, at understanding nature to begin with. We didn't even know how old the moon was, right. much less how exactly which day these ice shells are going to fall apart. We might want to assume they might at some point and start thinking about what that looks like and means. Though. Right, right. I think one of the things to keep in mind is um, if if 97% of the climate scientists who publish papers believe that humans are the major cause of global climate change, then we probably should listen to them. <laughs> A lot of the uncertainties aren't so much scientific uncertainties as much as the uncertainties of how much more carbon dioxide will we admit, admit, emit. Emit. And um, that's dependent on what we drive and what we use for electricity. And it's not just the U.S., but it's a number of other countries. So while we know what the processes are, if you can't project those greenhouse gas emissions, it makes it much harder to know when we're going to hit some critical point or a threshold or a tipping point and things are going to start to go go sideways really quickly. And that's sort of the scary part. So, yeah, you mentioned the word tipping point, and I've heard that used, and it sounds really scary because it sounds like a point of no return. Um, what does that mean exactly? <laughs> Is it what it sounds like? Well, I think there's a number of tipping points. Um, some of those have to do with circulation in the ocean. And as temperatures get to a certain point, current patterns start to change. Ice water starts to mix with surface water. And, for example, the Gulf Stream and what it does to northern Europe, very warm, is connected to what comes out of the Labrador Sea and melting of Greenland. And if you get to a certain point, you can't bring it back. And I think that's similar to carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, there's a lag 
And you can't take that, even though your first news item or your second one was about sucking carbon dioxide of the atmosphere. So, okay, to imagine we can suck it out of this room. But when you look at the atmosphere and the globe, say, whoa, what are you going to put up there? A big pipe and suck it out? So a benchtop experiment is one thing, but global is another. So if that CO2 has a life, and that's difficult because it's variable. Maybe it's in the atmosphere for 200 or 300 or 400 years. Everything we've ever produced is going to be there for that much longer, but there's a lag in when that really warms the surface and the ice enough to create these other effects. So we don't really know when we get to that point where, okay, we've locked in the melting of so much more ice already. And that's the really scary part, which we're not used to thinking about because we haven't had to deal with those things in our lifetime. And generally speaking, when, when people are planning, you know, they have a five-year, 10-year window for development. And that's why I always am shocked when I see a new building go up right at sea level. Because <laughs> I think, well, they're thinking in the 20 to 30-year range, not, not even 50. So this is 400 you're asking us to think. And that's extremely challenging for humans to do. We have never done that very well. So I'll, I'll pass it over to Joe because I don't want to be the only one asking a million questions because well, I could. <laughs> yeah, well, do, you're doing a great job there. Um, you know, a couple things just to preview here in the time we have left, which is what, maybe 15 minutes with Gary. Um, we ought to talk at some point about the other huge elephant in the room, equally big to global warming, namely uh, ocean acidification. You know, it's not even causally connected to global warming, except that they're both caused by too much carbon in the atmosphere. But, but there's, and, and then the other one is, uh, in fact, we just got our first question from a listener here. What about the methane release threat in the Arctic? And I've heard that, well, this, that could be huge, except that it's not all that likely, at least for a long time. You know, the, like the clath rates on the bottom of the ocean, uh, hydrates of methane. Uh, what, what, what do you know or think about that one? Let's, let's start there, because maybe we can do that one kind of quick. <laughs> We've got a lot of time. So the clath rates, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's another relatively new finding. I mean, in the order of uh, decades of... Uh, of science uh, and I think what it tells us is there's a lot of things we still don't know but this discovery that we have these sort of molecules that are in this ice-like structure and about 56 million years ago we had this giant release of carbon from the ocean that led to this huge pulse in warming um, now called the Paleocene, Eocene, <laughs> extinction, <laughs> thermal maximum, and it, we released, you know, the equivalent of 500 parts per million and doubled the CO2 in the atmosphere quite quickly. And what, what's interesting is the ocean contains about 50 times more carbon dioxide than the atmosphere. So, in fact, <laughs> even natural causes can um, release that huge amounts there a capacity to release more into the atmosphere but of all the carbon dioxide we release today about 44 percent goes into the atmosphere and that's creating this added greenhouse effect and we have a natural greenhouse effect also otherwise be really cold right be really cold the global like average temperature would be about zero instead it's about 60 so we're kind of adding fahrenheit yeah fahrenheit i'm sorry that's okay <laughs> so we're adding you know another electric blanket every whatever um but maybe 26% or so of that, 25% goes into uh, the ocean and the rest is taken up by vegetation. So 
carbon dioxide in the ocean dissociates, interacts with water, and we get carbonic acid and bicarbonate. But it's the free hydrogen that gives us pH or ocean acidity. And that's something that nobody thought about until recently. And all of a sudden realized, wow, ocean acidity has gone up about 30% over its natural levels. And if you've ever been out on the ocean, I went around the world on a ship not long ago. And, you know, it took us 18 days to get from San Diego to Japan. And I realized all that water out there is, you know, 15,000 feet deep. And we've changed the pH of that entire ocean. So the effects it has are still being understood and documented on plankton that make calcium carbonate shells and oysters and coral reefs and so forth. So the potential impacts are massive and the state has actually just finished a big study on that and what are our strategies for beginning to come to grips with it. But it's difficult because it's not just a California problem or a California problem. I mean, California, West Coast, it's a global problem. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard um, bleaching events were related to that in the Great Barrier Reef, uh, that something like 70% of the coral. This is all really hard to hear because it's a long list of things that are going or could go awry or are going awry. So we hope to, in the future, also present you with some glimmers. And they may be just glimmers or they may be <laughs> big flashlights of hope um, of things that are being done. And this could be things that will change, like you said, our driving habits radically or our eating habits, because I understand the cows and methane are one big <laughs> contributor among many to this uh, very complex problem. And uh, for a little bit of cosmic relief here, a uh, question I've been wanting to ask Gary, because uh, I know he's an expert on tides, among other things, and he mentioned the king tides we've been having. That's kind of a recent term that's been bandied around in the media. Um, but one of the main times they occur here is right around now and, you know, like December. And I'm wondering, well, I'm going to ask you a question, but I'm going to preface it with a fun fact that many people don't know. We are actually closer to the sun now by about 4 million miles than we are in early July when we're farthest from the sun. <laughs> so think about that. It just goes to show you the seasons <laughs> don't depend on our distance from the sun, but rather that tilt of the Earth's axis. So anyway, perihelion, our closest approach to the sun was about January 3rd or 4th, you know, just a week and a half ago. And, uh, you know, the tides everybody knows have to do with the moon, but they also have something to do with the sun. And if we're several percent closer to the sun now. I'm wondering if maybe the amplification of that um, has to do with the king tides that happen this time of year. Definitely. All right. Yeah. So that what, what does coincide with our distance to the moon, which varies over a yearly cycle, and a distance to the sun, which varies similarly, when those coincide, we get these extreme highs and lows. But your ex absolutely right joe even a few percent makes a difference between a 6.4 foot tide and a 6.6 .6 or 6.7 foot tide so the ground or the shoreline is very flat a few inches can mean 10 or 15 feet inland and one of the most exciting places is the embarcadero in san francisco where at high tide now with no more sea level rise high tide is washing onto the sidewalk and into the streets. Mm. So mm -hmm. if people are not yet concerned about rising sea level, they should spend a high tide on the Embarcadero and wear your uh, rubber boots. <laughs> now, one of the um, solutions some people have come up with, and I know, Gary, you've studied this a lot, um, 
for sea level rise or even just king tides is um, what they call coastal armoring. It's putting a whole bunch of riprap <laughs> or concrete. And in the case of the people in the Netherlands, you know, dikes. Um, how effective are dikes, levees, and uh, armoring against the huge power of the sea um, in all our coastal communities? I mean, so many people have moved to coastal communities coincidentally with potential rise of sea. So now we have the biggest major cities in the world all clustered for the ocean view. That's going to be problematic. Can there? Can they just put up a yeah. wall, <laughs> build a wall? <laughs> well, I mean, you hit on a really important Blocks thing. Blocks the view. <laughs> <laughs> the issue of people living on coastlines is a increasing one because people would rather live in Santa Cruz than Los Manos, for example, or Merced, or without hitting on inland cities. But around the world today, probably half of the world's population lives within 50 miles of the coast. Of the world's 10 megacities, over 10 million people, eight of those are on the coast. And there's now 150 million people within three feet of high tide. And that's a projected sea level by 2100 without any big ice breakup. So it's a massive problem. And there's basically three solutions. One is do nothing and pray or hope or something that's going to go another direction. A second would be armor. And that's been our dominant approach globally in the past, build walls, levees, riprap, seawalls. And the other is what we could call managed retreat, or as one of my former students said, stepping back gracefully. How about <laughs> fleeing, the art of fleeing? fleeing. <laughs> Run foo. I've heard it's very good art to learn. Or people have said, if you can fish from your living room window, you're too close. <laughs> but the important thing to keep in mind is the Pacific is 8,000 miles wide. It doesn't care about a few feet on either side, but we have built literally right up to the edge, and that's the most valuable real estate. So every armor, every seawall, every protective effort has a lifespan. And there's a lot of places where it's failed and we've moved back. Um, Pacifica has become sort of the poster child for building on the edge and now taking those apartments down. We've done that in Capitola on Depot Hill. So that's gonna become more commonplace. Nobody that lives there wants that, but the levee collapse in New Orleans is a good example during Katrina. Um, so you're at risk whenever you're living below sea level behind a structure. Yeah, it sounds like it, even despite some of the great uh, cities in the Netherlands have managed to keep their thumb there on the dike. <laughs> Um, let's just mention you're listening to Planet Watch, and if you'd like to join us by email and ask a question, it's planetwatchksco at gmail.com, planetwatchksco at gmail.com, and we welcome your questions and comments for Professor Gary Griggs, who is our guest today on Planet Watch, The Maiden Journey, and I like that because it's very nautical in <laughs> terms. So, yes, um, one of the other questions you raise or seem to have raised by saying, you know, the wealthiest, biggest, beautiful homes are right next to the ocean is, does that end up being a cost we as society will bear, which is paying the insurance needed or the recovery cost as a society for those people who chose to live, you know, and want to rebuild this is always comes up when people build in a flood zone and expect for replacement cost of their home to be borne by FEMA or any of the rest of us. How do we reconcile that? I like your planned retreat idea. You, you didn't elaborate terribly, but I'd love to hear more about a graceful moving <laughs> instead of just 
shoring it up and paying for right, these right. rebuilds to happen again and again. I think there are a lot of places where the public has paid for that protection or armor, whether it's through the Corps of Engineers or state agencies, when it's supposed to be on the public's interest. But quite often it's private homes or whatever. Seacliff State Beach, where the concrete ship, sometimes called cement ship, is, that wall has been built and rebuilt eight times. So at some point you say, you know, we all make mistakes, but we don't make the same mistake repeatedly. Um, so insurance is one way that we kind of help everybody out. You know, we all pay car insurance and house insurance, and when somebody suffers, they get paid. But the federal government through FEMA has been questioned, and I think now you get one free flood, <laughs> <laughs> and then the government's no longer going to insure you. So on the East Coast, where hurricanes have repeatedly devastated barrier islands, they're no non longer, as I understand it, insuring those people who live in those areas. Um, I think insurance is one of those things, I, we could talk about earthquake insurance because I think for the most part, if you're in a really hazardous zone, you probably can't get it. And if you're not, like most of Santa Cruz, the deductibles are so high, you're never going to collect on it. So insurance companies are in business to make money, not lose money. So, yeah. But I think the question is a good one. How much should we be subsidizing those people who live in oceanfront locations um, who perhaps shouldn't be... Uh, or even another question would be, how can we as a collective society help people migrate <laughs> successfully over the amount of time it's going to take to move, for example, cities like this coastal city we're standing in right now for the program. Santa Cruz, California, has got its main downtown in the flood zone, not only of the river, but the ocean. And um, there is another level of the town that could be moved, but nobody wants to do <laughs> So uh, that's more of the question is, is there a actual time frame by which it would be reasonable to consider all these cities slowly moving or are they just going to abandon big parts of themselves and go oops you know what i would say and i've said this in talks i've given is this issue of sea level rise and these incredible coastal concentrations of people around the world and i just finished a book called coast in crisis a global challenge it won't be out for another probably in the summer but hmm. it's trying to look at all the ways in which the national and environment affects us so whether it's tsunamis or sea level erosion and how we've affected the coastal environment whether it's ocean acidification or ocean fisheries or whatever <coughs> um, but how do you move miami how do you move new york city how do you move san francisco los angeles guanjiao um, any of these huge jakarta mumbai and that i think is the biggest problem civilization may ever have to face because cities were built without sea level in mind miami today is building fifty thousand new condominium units virtually at sea level with no allowance for sea level rising in fact miami is on limestone which is like swiss cheese so even if you build a wall water is going to come up underneath it so miami has some massive problems mm. You know, we maybe we should mention, uh, we may in the future take calls, live calls on this program. A lot of KSCO shows do. 
we've decided that for at least these first few shows, you contact us via email, planetwatchksco at gmail.com. We apparently have a caller on one of the lines, but I'm hoping that person has heard what I just said. So email us. And there is an email here with a question about cows and methane and beef and easily changing one's diet. And that relates to something that we, I mean, the upshot of what Gary and Rachel and us are talking about is that, look, it's kind of baked in already regardless of what we do, thousands of years of rising seas. I mean, that's what we're looking at. You know, I am going to be out of here pretty soon. Uh, uh, but, Hopefully not know, in the next 10 minutes. Right. Yeah. But kids and their grandkids and so on, not necessarily going to have a nice day a whole lot of the time. And so, you know, that's, that's where we've got to ask, what can we do? Well, hey, this thing about you know, our diet, and I'm not saying don't eat meat ever, you know, give up beef. That's kind of beyond the discussion of, that we're talking about right now. But, but it's, but, you know, you, you might phase those things out, and there are really interesting discussions, which we'll have on future shows about that issue. I got one for Gary, though. This was requested from a, a friend of mine who's involved with a wonderful organization called Citizens Climate Lobby, which has a ton of stuff that people can do, namely militating to get legislatively a price put on carbon. Um, and her question was, how do scientists like yourself, uh, and I have colleagues from NASA Ames, where I worked for decades, who are now very worried about, uh, you know, censorship and recriminations. Uh, if you talk about climate change, the verboten subject, especially with the new incoming administration, supposedly. Um, and Gary, you've been talking freely about this stuff. I mean, of course, James Hansen does too. He, he's old enough and established enough, he can just kind of get away with it. But what do you say to, I don't know, young scientists who are dealing with climate research? What, what do they say? How freely uh, without losing the, you know, maybe losing people to thinking that they're biased or something? Right. I think one thing that's important is to separate science from religion and politics. <laughs> Those are very different things. And this wonderful quote from Neil deGrasse Tyson science the wonderful thing about science it is science is it's true whether you believe it or not and another wonderful quote from daniel patrick monahan which is we're all entitled to our own opinions but not our own facts so i think as a scientist the the practice of science is a real critical one and i think there's lots of accusations being thrown out um but in fact Scientists are so careful, for the most part, in what they do and how they do it that one should never be, I don't care who you are, be afraid of talking about the truth. Now, whether you want to go on the front page of the newspaper every day, proclaim that, which <laughs> I do on the first page of the second section. But I think it is different in many ways if you're with a federal agency where you've got several layers of administration that answer to somebody else, that you're probably like James Hansen, who was not afraid to speak out, um, a little more vulnerable. And I think you have to, you know, live with yourself and your science. Uh, and I think you have to be uh, truthful, but not neutral. <laughs> and I think one of the challenges today is there's been a huge um, sort of effort primarily by the energy companies that have paid through a number of institutes, scientists that aren't respected, um, to argue against the, the sort of mainstream scientists. And I think one of the problems in the media is that 
a hundred scientists, climate scientists, can agree on something which is unique in science, and one, maybe two, maybe two non-respected scientists come up with an argument, and so the media treats that as it's an unresolved question. So, less than half of the people in the country understand that climate change is really occurring, even though the great majority of the climate scientists do. So that puts the average member of the public in a difficult position. And it's really not doing um, people a service to misinform them. I, I've often seen um, some of the more conservative uh, television stations, Fox is the main one, put a non-scientist up against a renowned scientist. And this non-scientist is paid by the energy companies to go on and cast doubt. They don't need to refute the science. They simply need to say that it's unresolved. And that's the um, wedge by which they seem to want to deflect funding and interest in the topic. So right. it, it takes a pretty media literate person to watch that and say, that person's been in the sciences for 50, 40, 50 years. That person is... Um, you know, has an AA in sociology, but he's paid well. So, you know, you have to notice right. the source. And this is not something people are taught to do. I wish they were taught to do it in junior high, actually, because then the media and science literacy would rise and we would maybe be all on the same page at a crucial time when we need to be. You know, we have a little bit of time, and I want to bring Tommy in, who had a question about an article he read about a group of scientists on the ice up in... The yeah. Arctic, was that where it was? Yes, it was. Make it closer. There you go. It was actually um, an article about the scientists having to move their scientific research center about 14 miles because of a crack in the Arctic and uh, the dangers that it was presenting to their research. So, yeah, I was wondering what you thought about the um, potential changes in the ice and what it could uh, potentially mean for science research in the future. So the Arctic, in contrast to the Antarctic, is not a continent, but it's been an ice shelf for a long, long time. And we've had decades of explorers who have gone overland to the North Pole, which now you can go by ship during the right time of year. So what's happening is, and the ice cracks are just an example of these big sheets breaking up in the spring and the summer, early fall months that we never had before. In fact, now cruise ships have gone across the North Passage. So what's very clear is the ice is melting back further each year. Again, it's not adding to sea level rise, but it's like a thermometer up there. And the poles are responding much quicker than the temperate latitudes are to these temperature changes. So those cracks are just a manifestation of that ice that's been there for thousands of years beginning to break up. Interesting. We have just a few more minutes with Gary. So, um, Joe, if you want to ask a final question, and then we um, have a few quiz items for the audience. <laughs> Maybe you've been listening carefully and taking notes, uh, but if not, it's okay. We always yeah. are going to have a quiz every week for you and, and a fun fact. Maybe yeah, or, even or some party things. tricks. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, you know, just one thing there, which we're probably going to have to get to in later shows, but a lot of people will say, yeah, all this, you know, pretty striking, you know, terrifying stuff is happening in the Arctic, but do we have anything to do with it? Can we do anything about it? Or is it a natural cycle? Now, that's a whole climate discussion. <laughs> but uh, I got one for Gary, which is kind of just for fun, and it's for all of us, actually. This is a little science lesson kind of thing. Uh, I get asked, well, my students, I ask them this question. And the answers I get are pretty interesting. I say, why is the sky blue? The reason I bring that up here is because the answer I most often get is 
it's reflecting off the ocean. It's the reflection off the ocean. So uh, we can all think about this a little bit right now, but Gary, what would you say if uh, you know you had asked students that and they, they told you that? I mean, it's apropos of oceans, of course. Well, I see it has to do with how the molecules in the atmosphere reflect, absorb, transmit various wavelengths of light. Scatter the light. Yeah, the way I put it is, well, let's see now. Uh, there are days when the ocean isn't blue, it's gray. <laughs> Uh, well, but you could still say, well, but the sky reflects the ocean, too, because on those days, the sky is gray. <laughs> but is it more reasonable to assume that the sky changes its mind than the ocean? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> the sky, we know why it changes colors. Why would the ocean do that? So anyway, it's an interesting little thing. Are we going to answer that at the end of the show? Oh, we did already. Oh. Well, it, you know, they call it Rayleigh scattering, named after a guy named Rayleigh, R-A-Y-L-E-I-G-H. It's the, that the molecules are so small of nitrogen and other constituents of the atmosphere that they scatter mostly the blue and purple and green light and a little bit of all the colors the red and the yellow sky blue is a mixture of all the colors but mostly the blue shortwave end of the spectrum does that explain why your shirt is so incredibly blue oh yeah it's He's a, wearing a yeah. sky blue shirt it's called a rayleigh shirt yeah <laughs> <laughs> well just in closing um gary griggs what's next for you what, what are you going to be working on in the next you know three to five years what's your big project coming up besides writing books and lecturing and doing research and besides running, that besides that <laughs> yeah. in your spare time well, this lecture coming up Thursday night will be a little different. It's about short-term geologic disasters, but long-term history. Uh, again, um, I'm gonna, I will be on this committee that the governor's office has set up to look at sea level rise for the California coast in the immediate future. Um, and actually just finished beside the book I mentioned, another book with a friend in Santa Cruz called um, The Edge. Hmm. Tales from the shoreline of the People's Coast. So looking at the coast of California as an edge, and we can think about an edge of sea level and erosion, but it's also an edge of culture and an edge of migrants, uh, edge for fishing and productivity. So there's so many things that focus, and that's where my time and energy has been focused hard to believe, but almost half a century since I've been in Santa Cruz. Uh, to me, it's just this incredibly interesting diverse place that draws us here yet affects us in a lot of ways so um uh you know it, it's like i think peter douglas the former director of the coastal commission said the coast is never saved it's always being saved and i guess i feel that about climate and ocean and hazards and so forth so even though this is my 49th year at uc santa cruz i feel like i'm just getting going in many ways so I'm going to keep at it for as long as I can. We hope you stay doing that <laughs> and because question, we need the information that you're providing. And to question us. slash announcement. You know, we have this new uh, annual climate conference that UCSC hosts, and uh, it's going to be February 24th and 25th this year, a weekend. And Ramanathan, the great climate scientist, keynote speaker. But do you go? Are you going to maybe be here for any of that? Or I hope um, to. Yeah, and they've had some really good speakers in the past that have, uh, you know, brought national attention to Santa Cruz and I think a lot of eye-opening sort of awareness raising conversations that it isn't just you know people from UC Santa Cruz all right yeah all over the world well Gary Griggs thank you so much for being thank here you. Dr. Gary Griggs from the Long Marine Lab Seymour Center and UC Santa Cruz a oceanographer and a great researcher bringing us lots of information about what's happening on the planet here on <laughs> Planet Watch thank, thank you thank you and now go out and play yeah. <laughs> enjoy, enjoy this the beautiful planet. day okay yes, thank <laughs> thanks you. a lot Gary okay you guys bye-bye bye, -bye. bye.
All right, in the five or so, six minutes we have left, we're going to do uh, a little bit of a experiment of the week, and then we're going to give you a little bit of cosmic news to send you off on your way, perhaps a way to look at the sky in a different way and celebrate the planet we do live on. So, um, Joe, did you have this yeah, experiment well, you can do as a party trick? Yeah, an experiment <laughs> and a phenomenon. So let me see if we can get those in, and then we'll do a sky, a quick sky planet thing, other planets to watch in the coming uh, couple of few days. And there weeks. are other planets other than Yeah, others. and we can see them. <laughs> um, the experiment of the week, actually, Gary kind of uh, stole our thunder already, but in case you didn't catch it, uh, plop an ice cube into a glass of water, and of course that's going to make the water level go up. Mark the water level with a Sharpie or whatever, or just a piece of masking tape, and then put a couple ice cubes in, whatever, two or three, just so long as they aren't touching the bottom of the glass. They're all floating. Mark that new water level. Go away for an hour. Let it melt. And here's the question. What happens to the water level? And the answer, it, there's three possible answers. It could go down, it could go up, or it could stay the same. And roughly uh, among fairly well-educated students of mine and the general public, the, there's about a third, a third, a third. You know, the answers, all three answers are about equally represented. So you do the experiment, and we can talk about that on a future show and how it relates to sea level rise and climate change and so on. Um, Tommy, what do you think? Well-educated student in our midst? I don't want to put you on the spot. You can make a guess and yeah. then come back and tell it's us what you... It's definitely a guess. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say that it decreases. Mm, so he says it decreases. Yeah, well, it decreases. Am I supposed to give the answer right now? No. no. Everybody should do this. This is your homework. <laughs> this is your homework Aww, for next... Dad. Till next week. <laughs> Isn't it um, funny? A lot of people think of, oh, no, a science show. I don't know anything, so I shouldn't listen. But actually, this is science everyone can do. An ice cube and a cup and a marker. In your kitchen. You can do this at a party. And you could even make it like your martini. Does it count? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you Margarita? can do it in salt water, too. You can do it in salt water. So. <laughs> um, but um, so now here's um, the phenomenon of the week. The fabled green flash. I mean, today here in Santa Cruz, on the edge of the continent, <laughs> beautiful clear day. I'm going to be going out there just around 5 p.m. on West Cliff Drive <laughs> and looking for the sunset. And um, as the sun goes down, just the last second or so, the top edge of the sun as it's going down will momentarily turn brilliant emerald green if conditions are just right. You know, if you have clouds and stuff in the way, it's not going to happen. But today is a day when it might. And uh, it actually is visible at sunrise, too, and that's even a better time to look at it because then your eyes aren't playing tricks on you. You, <laughs> you know, you have to make sure you're looking away. At sunset, don't just be staring at it and expecting it to turn green because your eyes are going to be shot to hell. I've done that. <laughs> you, you need to keep looking away and looking away and sort of keeping it in the corner of your eye until you know that it's only a couple seconds left and it will turn green. It's and not really a flash, though, is it? Well, it, well it, I mean, in that it lasts for maybe a second. Now, up in Alaska and Norway, higher latitudes, it's more like a green flash because <laughs> the sun's going down at a more oblique angle to the horizon. Have you seen it, no. Tommy? Have you ever seen that? I've tried multiple times, well, but you I've never come seen out with it. me on West Cliff Drive. Yeah, I'll have to go with you. Sometime. People were making fun of me when I was trying to capture it by a camera. They said, you can't. But. A lot of people <laughs> think that it's a big flash on the sky. The whole sky lights up green. They think it's a hoax <laughs> perpetrated by um, scientists in order to get lots of money. That's what I hear. So we... <laughs> And the but green for the green. About, I yeah. gotta tell you about the planets. I mean, the name planets comes from the Greek planeti, the wanderers. They were these bright <laughs> lights in the sky that move around relative to the background stars. 
And uh, two really prominent ones now in the southwest evening sky are Venus. You can't miss Venus. It's like a truck driving out of the sky <laughs> at you. Really bright white light. A motorcycle, because it's only one. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and then up and to the left of that is a reddish, very noticeably orangish reddish Mars. And they're getting closer and closer together <laughs> for the next couple of weeks or so. Then they'll reach a closest point and then they'll back away from each other. It's not quite a conjunction, but you can actually see how they're moving. Well, and Jupiter, that, that music that we played at the beginning that we're going to play again in about two minutes now at the end of the show, that's from <laughs> Gustav Holst's The Planets, and it's the Jupiter track. And if you want to know where to see Jupiter, you got to be up after midnight. It comes up now about midnight, one, two, three. It'll be up in the east, and uh, it'll be coming up earlier and earlier as, as we go around the sun. So there you go. So Lots there you go. And Planet we, Watch. Planet Watch is the name of the program. <laughs> we are brand new. This our maiden voyage. I am Rachel Ann Goodman along with Joe Jordan and Tommy Martin and next week on the program we have a special guest who's doing some interesting work in ocean en energy and cooling and the cooling atmosphere. the ocean which probably is what we need to do after we just heard 45 minutes of discussion about how it's heating up <laughs> and the consequences of that. Uh, can one man's invention actually make a difference when it comes to cooling a giant thing like the ocean? We'll find out what the potential is and ask him some tough questions about the proof of his concept and whether um, it's going to fly or not. What's the difference between a quirk and a quark? How about dark matter and gray matter? Does it matter? Tune in to Planet Watch, Real Solutions to Big Problems, with Joe Jordan and Rachel Ann Goodman. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. My co-host, former NASA scientist Joe Jordan, and I will talk with the founder of Cool It Earth, Alan Miller, about plans to use ocean thermal energy conversion to help combat global warming. What's the difference between a quirk and a quark? How about dark matter and gray matter? Does it matter? Tune in to Planet Watch, Real Solutions to Big Problems with Joe Jordan and Rachel Ann Goodman.